you, Stephen, for reading that passage. Let's open the Bibles again to Philippians and chapter 2. So we have been uh, going through this, uh, this wonderful book and we've made it into chapter 2. The book of Philippians, as we uh, have observed in, in our study, is uh, you know, obviously written by the Apostle Paul. And um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it was, uh, the church in Philippi was a church that he had uh, founded or had started on one of his missionary journeys. It was the first church um, uh, in, uh, in, um, in, in Europe. Uh, with the conversion of Lydia and then the Philippian jailer and their families. And it's one of the four epistles that Paul wrote from prison. And this is something that we need to keep in the back of our minds as we go through uh, this epistle, that Paul is sitting in a prison, um, you know, under arrest, waiting trial, not knowing what, what would be his fate. And, um, and even as he writes this, he's writing to a church also that is facing suffering and and, uh, you know, his theme, as we'll see as we go along, is, is how they should handle this and the fact that they ought to rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. So there's a lot of emphasis of being joyful in the Lord uh, and uh, being joyful in the midst of suffering. And we saw in uh, chapter 1, you know, Paul starts off giving thanks for the Philippian believers giving thanks for their, their faithfulness and for their participation in his ministry and their support for his ministry. And he prays that their love, you know, they were known as a church of, of, of uh, people with a great deal of love and he prayed that their love would abound. And then he goes on to look inwardly into himself and his condition, his condition where he is in prison, he is facing suffering uh, and he doesn't know whether his life is going to go on or He's going to be executed by the, by the, the Roman emperor, uh, you know, once he goes through, through the trial. Uh, not knowing all of this, Paul looks in and he looks at his own circumstances. And in chapter 1 and verse 12 onwards, he talks about how even though he is in this difficult circumstance, yet he rejoices because uh, what has happened to him in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he thanks God that even though he's going through this difficult circumstance yet his because despite this difficult circumstance the gospel is going out Despite the difficult circumstances, other believers are being emboldened by his boldness and the kingdom of God is being built. And then he goes to that wonderful passage we looked at a few months ago where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We saw how the, the love that the, the, the Apostle Paul had for the Lord Jesus Christ um, you know, was so intense. His desire to be with him was so intense. That is what he desired more than anything else in the world. Uh, and as a result, his desire was, his, his intense desire was to be, to die and to be in the presence of the Lord. And yet, 
he recognized that perhaps the Lord wanted him to stay here and if he was given more life then the purpose of that life would be to remain in the flesh and do what is needed because the, the Philippian believers and other believers in the churches needed his ministry, they needed that to progress in their faith and therefore he was willing to continue on even though his deep design. We looked at how, you know, how much um, lacking is our love for the Lord and how much we love our life and the things of life and the comforts of life and the pleasures of life and, and the luxuries of life so much more than we do uh, the Lord and how much we ought to examine the goals of our own life and to see if for us to live really is Christ. And that should be the only, the, the overarching goal uh, of the Christian is to live if we are living for Christ. And then in verse 27 onwards, Paul looks back out to the church and he starts talking to them and he says, verse 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your conduct be worthy. And from chapter 127 all the way through somewhere around chapter 2 and verse 18, he's giving instruction, he's, he's telling the church, what, is it, you know, what does it mean to, to have your conduct be worthy of the gospel? What does the conduct that is worthy of the gospel need to look like? And in so doing, he addresses various challenges that were faced by the church in Philippi and by churches not just during that time, but even today. Many of these challenges that we see here are things that we ourselves face today in our very own church and churches around us. Uh, and he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. And then he starts off here with the instruction in verse 27 of chapter 1. And he says, um, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul goes into a long discussion of this subject of unity, unity among the believers. He says, when I come, I want to see that you stand fast in one spirit, that you are all united in one spirit, that you are all united with one mind, that you are striving together, you are working together, that you are setting aside all the differences and the disunity and the problems that you have with each other, and instead you are striving together as one for what? For the faith of the gospel so that the adversaries may not be emboldened so that the kingdom of God might be established and grow so that the church might continue to prosper and he goes on in chapter 2 we saw in verses 1 through 4 and we're going to focus on 5 to 8 today but but let's just look at 1 to 4 he says if any consolation in Christ if any comfort of love if any fellowship of the spirit if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy and he gives us here uh, six things he says be like-minded be like-minded think alike secondly he says have the same love what same love uh, in chapter 1 verse 1 he says if any comfort of love that is the love that God the Father had for you we, we talked about that this morning as we remembered the Lord the same love that God had for you I want you to have the same love for each other thirdly you are to be of one accord being of one accord of one mind be united, be together. And then he goes on, he says, verse, uh, chapter um, 2 and verse uh, 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, self-centeredness. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition. We should not, anything we do should not be driven by any goals we have for ourselves, any ambition, selfish ambition, things that have to only do with our own selves, but rather we should look out 
for everybody. And then he says, you are to esteem others better than yourself. Let each esteem others better than himself. The last part of verse 3. Let each of you, verse 4, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And we looked at this last, last time when I spoke. You know, be like-minded. Have the same love that God had for you. Be of one accord and one mind. Do not do anything out of selfish ambition and empty glory or vain conceit. Um, esteem others better than yourself and look out for the interests of others. And then Paul goes on, verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, let me, having told you what I desire for you, having told you about the unity that I desire for you as believers in Christ as a church, let me go ahead and give you an example of what I'm talking about. And he presents Christ as the example of the type of humility. And that whole, you know, all of these things, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind, not doing anything out of selfish ambition or conceit and esteeming others better than ourselves and looking out for the interests of others, all of that, you can encapsulate all of that in one word, and that is humility. We have to be humble. You know, we have to not put ourselves up above everybody, but rather, you know, lower ourselves. We have to humble ourselves in the sight of God. You know, God gives grace to the humble. You know, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, we read in the epistle of James. And here he says, let me give you an example of humility. And he presents the Lord Jesus Christ as an example of the type of humility needed in order to have the unity for which he appeals. He says, look to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he launches into this passage, chapter 2, verses 6 through through 11, uh, which is just an absolutely majestic, uh, passionate, poetic passage with which... which, um, uh, has a complete narrative and it is probably one of the most well-known, probably one of the most uh, uh, spoken about passages in scripture. Many of us could probably recite this from memory. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it is an absolutely beautiful passage. Very often we, we have folks, you know, share this passage, uh, you know, at the, uh, the remembrance meeting because it beautifully presents end-to-end, you know, the story of the incarnation of Christ and his person and his work everything is contained here in fact it's a self-contained story you can literally pull it out of this passage and you don't have to worry about what came before and what came after it stands completely uniquely you know uh, by itself you know everything is there the beginning the ending the character uh, everything the whole plot everything is all contained in this passage and but you know uh, unfortunately what that means is very often you know it when we take it out and divorce it from its context, it loses some of its real intent. And we forget when we talk about this, we think that we are eloquently speaking about what Christ has done and and his sacrifice. And yes, we are. It eloquently presents that in, in language that no other part of scripture does. But, you know, when we take it out of the context, we miss the fact that it is presented for a purpose. And the purpose is to be an example and point to something else, which is a change that ought to come in our own life. And that is that we are to be humble, just as the Lord Jesus was humble. And as we go through this passage this morning, I want us to remember that this passage is not, uh, you know, the intent of this passage is not so that we may sit here and say, oh, what a marvelous thing the Lord has done for us. No, it is so that we may look at the marvelous thing the Lord has done. We may look at his humility, and it may then translate into our own lives. And if we 
do not have that humility translate into our own lives, then we have completely missed the point of this beautiful, majestic passage that the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul has inserted into this book here. And so let's look at that. Here we see the mindset which should be in us. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It's a call to unity based on what we have received from God. In 2 verse 1 he says, if there is any consolation of, in Christ, okay, if there is any comfort of love, that is the love of God, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit, the, the Son and the Father together, the complete Trinity has shown your, their, their love for you. You know, it's a call to unity based on what we have received from God. We as believers have experienced the benefits of the unity in the triune Godhead. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit together have worked to give us this wonderful, beautiful salvation. Consolation, encouragement, Christ. If you have any comfort or solace of the love of God the Father, if you have any fellowship in sharing of the Holy Spirit, he says, let me give you the ultimate example of this humility. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of a genuinely Christian mindset. The best manifestation of the character of God, a character that God wants to reproduce in his people. You know, we have been saved for a purpose. We are being conformed to the image of his son. And if his son showed humility, if humility was an essential part of his character, then that same humility ought to be being built up, ought to be uh, transforming our own lives. And we ought to become humble people. And he says, let this mind, let this mind be in you. What mind? That mind goes back. He's pointing back to verses 2, 3 and 4. Let this mind be in you. A mind that does not do anything by selfish ambition or conceit. You think about ourselves, you know, everything we do, most everything we do, it really, we, we look at what we should do, how we should go about our lives by looking at it through the lens of what's in it for us. What does it mean for me? What benefit is it? Is it going to, I'm talking about all decisions, spiritual decisions, you know, not spiritual, spiritual decisions. What's in it for me? What can I gain out of this? If I take this job or I go to this place or I help this person or uh, you know, I go and take this course for my education, if I start this job, what is it for me? You know, selfish ambition comes naturally to us in our fallen state. You know, we think first about ourselves. We are, we are individualistic beings. We think about what is good for us before we think about what is good for others. That's what comes naturally and it takes a lot of effort. It takes the grace of God to overcome that and set aside the selfish ambition. But he says, this mind, I want this mind, a mind that is lowly, a mind that esteems others better than yourselves, a mind that looks out for the interests of others. Let this mind, I want this kind of a mind to be in you, dear believer. This is what God desires for you. This is what it means to have your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, as it says in verse 27. You know, we've talked about this. The gospel is not just about the message of salvation. The gospel is not just that the Lord Jesus came and died and saved you and died for your sins and paid the penalty. And if you believe in him, you know, you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven and spend all eternity with him. That's an essential part of the gospel, but it's much more than that. The gospel is about our, ourselves being changed and living a different life. It's about transformation that needs to happen day in and day out. And one of those things, the transformations that need to happen is that we should 
become humble. We should have this humble mind. We should think about others better than ourselves. We should put aside the selfish uh, ambition and conceit. We should consider others better than ourselves. And then he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It was also in Christ Jesus. But it's not enough that this mind be just in Christ Jesus. But this very mind of God that was exhibited in, in the incarnation of Christ, I want it to be exhibited in your relationships with each other. Have the same attitude of mind that Christ has exhibited in his incarnation. Let's think about our relationships. What is the mindset that characterizes our relationships with each other? Is it a selfish mindset or is it a selfless mindset? Let's think about the relationship between husband and wife. You know, a marriage, a Christian marriage needs to be characterized by humility. You know, why do we have conflicts in marriage? Because we're not willing to submit. We're not willing to humble ourselves. We're not willing to hold up the other person, our spouse, above ourselves. We want what is what we selfishly want, uh, you know, what we desire. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. You know, when you look around, you know, you know as, as an elder, we, we have the, uh, the privilege of hearing from many of you at many times and very often we hear, you know, things about each other. You know, I don't know how many times we've had conversations in the last eight years with individuals who come and tell us, you know, I have a problem with so-and-so or I have a problem with that person. He's too proud. He's too this. He's too that. You know, and, and you've got to realize that, you know, in a church, we have people who come in all shapes and sizes. We have people with, you know, we're all fallen sinners. We have people with strengths and the same people with strengths have weaknesses as well. You know, there are some people who, uh, who have initiative and want to serve the Lord and yet they're very negative about other things. There are some who want to serve and do things, but they want to go it alone. They don't want to let other people get involved. There are some who know the word, but but don't have empathy in how they apply it. There are others who have a lot of empathy and feeling, but they don't have the content of the word to be able to to, to minister effectively. There are those who are faithful in attendance, but they're very quiet in the church. And there are others who, who may put on a show of spirituality, and yet inside they are struggling. But our role in the church is to look at all of these things and not put people down for their deficiencies, not put people down for what they may lack. And you know, that's something that I've always tried to do is always try to, you know, in encouraging people in the church, we understand that there are weaknesses. We understand that not everybody's perfect, but we need to encourage what they're good at and work with them to get them past the things that they need to work on and to, to, to address those things so that they may grow from strength to strength and they may benefit the church. In our relationship with each other, we are to have the same attitude. How do we view each other? You know, think about, you know, in, the, in our discipleship study, um, uh, recently we had a little exercise, an application exercise, and it said, you know, f- uh, think of five people that you don't get along with. I, I don't know how many of you did that, but it says, think of, think of five people that you don't get along with and pray for them. Okay? You know, can you think of five people that you don't get along with? Or maybe five people that you don't even talk to because you rather not deal with them? We might think things are going well in the church, but I can tell you this. If we humble ourselves and we have unity and we think better of each other, of the other person, you know, our church will really enjoy the blessing of that 
and we will grow. Christ's humility. What do we see here about the humility of Christ? Verse 6 and 7, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. Let's look at this sort of broadly and then we'll delve into it. Christ's humility as seen in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He demonstrated what equality with God really meant. You know, he was equal with God, but equality with God did not mean taking advantage of himself. You know, in the NIV, I think it presents us, we'll look at that a little later. But he, but he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. It did not mean for him that the Lord Jesus was God and he could have taken advantage of the fact that he was God in essence and he had all of this power, but he did not consider it as, as uh, to mean being God, to mean take advantage of what I have. You know, I may be powerful, I may be uh, skillful, I may be uh, well-versed in the word and I can take advantage of that over other people. But being humble means choosing, voluntarily choosing not to take advantage of those abilities and privileges that I might have. Christ's actions here that we see here, that he being in the form of God did not consider it robbery or equality with God, something to be held on to, but he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. This act of his was the ultimate expression of let nothing be done out of selfish ambition or empty glory or conceit. When you think about it, you know, Matthew 18, 1 to 4, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, let's just go to that, that passage, Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. And here we have, um, you know, right before that, uh, we have the... Um, the disciples come to him and they say, you know, who, is the, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here are the disciples, you know, they've been following Jesus around and they see something there that this, this man is special, this master of ours is special, you know, and perhaps they've recognized who he is, the son of God, and what are they thinking about? Are they humbling themselves? No, they want to come to him and they want to ask him, who is going to be the greatest? And, you know, he doesn't say it there, but they're basically asking, who among us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus say? He called a little child to him, set him in the midst, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So who is it that's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It is the one with humility. Matthew 10, oh, sorry, Mark chapter 10, the gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. Mark 10, 42. So here the context is that the, uh, the uh, James and John, right? Um, you know, they come, uh, the, the, uh, the sons of Zebedee, they come to him, verse 35, they say, Teacher, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? They said, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in, the, in your glory. Here we have the two disciples who have walked with Jesus. You know, they haven't received a bit of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. They want one to be on the right and one to be on the left. And, and what does Jesus say to, him, uh, say to them in verse 42? He says, Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of your desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Christ's actions, the ultimate expression of let nothing be done out of selfish ambition. Let's look at our own actions. What are our own actions like? Are we always thinking about ourselves? Or are we thinking, you know, what I do, what I'm about to do, the decision that I'm about to make, how is it going to positively impact someone else? Let's look into the details of his humility here. Starting with verse 6. We see, first of all, the position that the Lord Jesus Christ is. We have to really, we're going to go step by step through this. And we find here that each step, you know, we start off, Paul starts off, that's what makes this, this passage so beautiful. He starts off with the fact that Jesus Christ was God. Right? And then he works his way down to where he becomes a man. And from being a man, he humbles himself unto death and death of the cross. And then he starts the way back up to exaltation. We won't look at that today. But we want to look at his, his humility here. His, his humiliation, if you will. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God. The NIV says it best. Being in very nature God in very essence. To understand the extent of the humility. And the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to start by understanding his starting position. We have to begin by understanding where he started off. He was the being in essence. In essence he was uh, 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 the essence of a person's nature. His essence was one of being God in form, which truly expresses the essence of the person. It was an unchangeable form. And there are many verses I could go to that talk about the deity of Christ, whether it's John 1.1 or John 1.3-4 or so on and so forth. I'm not going to go to them because we don't have time. But the deity of Christ is what he starts with. Christ is God. Christ was God before he started humiliation, before he humbled himself and came down as a man. His position was that he was God. He was not just some human being that humbled himself. No, he was God, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He was in the very nature God. His very nature was God all throughout. And then secondly, we see verse 6, second part. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And not all translations present this this very well, but basically uh, the NIV, again, does it best. I think it says, captures the essence of this. It basically means that he did not consider equality with God. He was equal with God. He was God. He did not consider this equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He did not consider the privileges of this Godhead to be held on to, to be grasped, to be You know, robbery in the sense of how a robber goes and grabs something and he wants to hold on to it. Doesn't want to give it up. No, Christ did not do that. He did not consider it robbery. He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to at all costs and say, I'm not going to give this up. He did not. Christ was willing to give up all of his rights and all of his privileges for a season. Why? So that he might humble himself to bring many sons to glory. The Lord Jesus Christ, he started out as God. And then 
his first step in his humility was that he did not consider what he had as something to be held on to. What is it that we have that we are holding on to? Is it our lineage? Is it our prestige? Is it our power? Is it our abilities, our skills? Is it our jobs? Is it the money that we have? You know, what is it that when we think about parting from it that gives us the most stress? That's a good way of finding out what it is that you're holding on to. So many things in life, you know, the world wants us to hold on. Not only hold on, it wants us to acquire more and more of that. You have so much prestige, you need to get more, it's not enough. You have so much stuff, you need to get more, it's not enough. The Lord Jesus Christ, he was God, he had everything. He was the image of the invisible one, the one who spoke and the whole worlds came into being. He could, uh, he sustains the whole universe by the word of his, power of his word. But, you know, if he had thought, I'm going to hold on to this, I'm not going to give this up. Forget that task that God the Father has given to me. I don't want to give this up. What would be our fate today? What is it that you are not giving up for the Lord today? You and I. What is it that we are holding on to so much that it is keeping us from serving the Lord, that it is keeping us from being united with other believers, that it is keeping us from doing what is needed for the growth and the enrichment of His church? The Lord Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Thirdly, we find here that uh, verse um, 7, first part, but made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. Again, I want to go to the, uh, the, the New American Standard here, which translates it best. It says he emptied himself. Not only did he not hold on to his rights and privilege, but it says he emptied himself. The Greek word there is kenosis. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, um, and I say unfortunately because this word kenosis, the subject has become uh, sort of a, 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 you know, a cause for theologians to debate and write books on and, and go this way and that way. I think there's more study done on this one thing because people get into all kinds of, you know, false teachings and, controversies, what did it mean that the Lord Jesus Christ emptied himself? You know, does it mean that he emptied himself of his deity? Does it mean he gave this up or didn't give that up? But you know, you got to always go back to the text and it tells us clearly how he emptied himself. You know, he did not give up, you know, his, his Godhead. He did not give up his deity. He was God and man. But it says, how did he empty himself? Uh, he emptied himself by what? Taking the form of a bond servant. He emptied himself by, by going from being God to being a bond servant, being a man. That's all it means to empty himself. He still remained God. He did not give up any, any aspect of his deity. And we know that he retained his divine nature because of the perfect life, the sinless life he lived. We know he retained his divine nature because of the miracles that he did. Yes, he chose not to exercise all of the power that he had to the extent that he could. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ had so much power at his disposal. He said, you know, I could, have call, I could call down uh, thousands of, 10,000 legions of angels to destroy these people who have come to take me. But he set that aside for a purpose because he humbled himself. 
he set aside his independent authority. You know, he submitted himself to obedience to the will of the Father. All these things, the power that he had, he didn't give up any of it. He didn't lose any of it. He just chose not to exercise it for a season. And that's what it means to humble yourself. It's not that you lose anything. But rather you choose, you make that choice that yes, I may have the power and the prestige, but I'm not going to use this to my advantage over my fellow believer. I'm not going to use this to an advantage over someone else. You know, Jesus had the divine prerogative. He could be anywhere at any point in time. But as a man, he could only be in one place. And yet we find glimpses of him, of his glory. In the transfiguration, we find a glimpse of his glory, his true glory as God. He just reveals himself for a flash to those three disciples. We find a glimpse of his, his uh, omnipresence in, when he talks to Nathaniel, you know, in the early part of the gospel. Then he says, I saw you. You know, you are an Israelite without guile. And he says, I saw you before he ever met him. He had eternal riches, but he became poor for our sake. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. He had no place to lay his head. He never ceased to be God. He could have exercised all of his power against his enemies, but he voluntarily did not do that. He chose not to do that because it would go against the task that was given to him. He emptied himself. He emptied himself and made himself of no reputation. How did he empty himself? By becoming a man. Fourthly, we find here that he, what did he do? He became a bond servant. He became a bond servant and coming in the likeness of man. He became a bond servant. You know, it's not just that he became any man. He became a bond servant. Isaiah 52. Let's read Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14. Someone finds it before me, please go ahead and read it. Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14. Yeah, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. The Messiah came as a servant. In Matthew 20, 28, he says, The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. In John 13, verse 12 to 17, we find the Lord Jesus Christ serving his disciples. He washes their feet. And he says, I have set this example for you. He humbled himself by becoming a bond servant. He went so low. He didn't just become a man, he became a bond servant. And then in verse 7 and verse part, verse 8, he says, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He identified with sinners. He came to save sinners and he wanted to identify with them. He wanted to look like them. He became fully man and he looked like a man. He, had, he came in the likeness of men. He took the appearance of sinful men. He felt... All that we feel, you know, in Hebrews 2, it says we have a high priest who has, who has felt everything that we have felt, who has been through everything, so that he can sympathize with us, with our weaknesses. Others looking at him, they saw a man. You know, you look at, look at how the people, the Jewish people at the time responded. They saw him doing all these things and said, who is this guy? 
Who is this man? Don't we know? We know he's the son of the carpenter. We know his brothers and sisters. How can he possibly, you know, to them, they, they had no inkling that this man, they did not view him as God. You know, he was so much in appearance as a man that they evaluated him on the same level as they would any other ordinary man. He identified with sinners and he looked like a man. And I want to make one very important point here. You know, throughout the step, we're going to look at the last point here that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You know, throughout this, this sequence, you know, we find him humbling himself and then humbling himself and then humbling himself and then humbling himself some more. You know, if all the Lord Jesus Christ did was come into the world as a man, that alone would be the ultimate step of humility. That would be the ultimate step down. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ could have come down as a king. That would still have indicated his humility because he would have come down as a man, as a human king. Maybe even if he had come down and lived in a palace, some would have expected the Messiah as a ruler. He would still have humbled himself. And the point I want to make is this, that you know, his humility, his, humble, his humbling didn't just stop with his incarnation, but it went even deeper. He became a man, he humbled himself. Instead of being a, just a man and forget, uh, you know, a, a, a man of some stature, he became a man who was nothing. A servant, he humbled himself, even another step. He was a servant. He didn't have a place to lay his head. The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nothing, nowhere to lay his head. You know, he wandered around, no place. Not only did he come as a man, as an ordinary man, but not just an ordinary man, but a servant. It says a bond servant, a doulos, a bond servant. But then he became obedient. He humbled himself even more. More than he already had by becoming obedient unto death. And then he humbled himself even more. What kind of death? Death on the cross. The death of a common criminal. I hope you're getting a sense of the, the depth of his humility here. And, and let's put that against the extent to which we are willing to humble ourselves. You know, we, we set aside a little bit and act a little humble and we are so proud of ourselves. You know, such a contradiction, right? Oh, look what I've given up. You know, I, uh, I get puzzled sometimes when people introduce, you know, there, there are believers who have given up their jobs and gone into the Lord's ministry and, and they say, this brother, he gave up an executive position you know, to go into the Lord's ministry. And it's nothing to do with that brother, but it's the people who are talking about him, you know. It just shows how we regard these things. Somehow, you know, being the executive is far more a bigger position than being in the Lord's ministry. You know, even in our humility, we want to show pride, right? You know, but the Lord Jesus didn't stop there. He was God. He came down to the world as a man. Not just any man, not a king, not a ruler, but a bond servant. And then he humbled himself again. He went to the cross. He, went, he died. He, gave, he, he was obedient. He was an obedient bond servant. Obedient to what? Humbled himself again to the point of death. And not just any death. Not some dignified death. No, a cruel, most cruel of deaths. He was beaten and bruised. We read in Isaiah there, his visage was marred. 
he allowed himself to be mistreated by his own creation all the power that he could have just snapped a finger and they would all be destroyed but he chose not to do that because he was still on the path to humility that culminated ultimately in his death on that cross he humbled himself by being obedient being found in appearance as a man verse 8 he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross he did not stop at emptying himself taking the form of man he went further in his humility by exhibiting the same mindset of humility and being obedient to death on the cross he did not fight back but he was obedient to the will of the father we read that passage this morning bewildered about you know father if it be possible take this cup away from me nevertheless not my will but thine be done and most shockingly he endured a cruelness of death both physically and symbolically he was made a curse cursed is everyone that hangeth on tree that's the ultimate step of his humiliation that he was made a curse and he bore your sins and my sins the humility of christ and i would love to go on and talk about his exaltation but i wanted to deliberately stop with this because i don't want to i don't i want us to think about his humiliation today let's not glory in his exaltation just yet because the exaltation is for the future the exaltation is a result of his humility he humbled himself and therefore verse 9 starts therefore why did he get exalted because he humbled himself how are we going to get it we are going to have an exaltation too in eternity but we need to humble ourselves and if you are someone who hasn't humbled yourself to the point of accepting christ as your savior your exaltation will never come i encourage you today to consider what this servant has done for you this bond servant the lord jesus christ the god man and if as most of you are you are a believer i wanted to ask yourself how much does the humility of christ characterize our lives he is like no other man that ever lived you know we have we have god men today you know in our culture we have god men you know yesterday i had an opportunity i had to go as part of my job to attend a function you know, about 5 hours from here csr related thing some work we had done in a village and the villagers put a little thing together to inaugurate this facilities and all that we had done and they called the local dignitaries and the biggest dignitary there was one swami ji he was actually a decent swami ji compared to others but he came and you know he was sitting right next to me and it was amazing how people were just coming and prostrating themselves before him and touching his feet and swami ji had a bowl in front of him silver bowl right before they prostrate they were dropping in 100 rupees and 2000 rupees and and then falling down before him and you know the first thought that i went through my mind is is how sad you know how sad these people think that this man is god and yet the more i thought about it i wonder you know there is a sadness on our own that i should consider on our own selves you know here are people you know we have the the real god man the only god man that ever lived you know these people are all fake god men the real god man and the devotion that these people had to that man you know they would literally put the ladies would touch their 
their, their, their foreheads on his, on his feet and bring their kids to do that. How much are we willing to do to prostrate ourselves before the Lord, the real God man? How little? You know, we are so caught up in our wealth and our prestige and our power and, and living our lives and, 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 you know, wanting more and accumulating things and wanting to be comfortable and all of these kind of things that we are not willing to humble ourselves. We have to humble ourselves. Christ did not cling to his equality with God. What positions of power or prestige are you and I clinging to in our life that is causing to lead to lack of unity among us? Christ emptied himself by becoming a man, becoming a servant. What have we given up for the sake of others so that we may all be united? Have you given anything up for your fellow believer who is in need? Christ became a servant. Have you and I become a servant to anyone? Do we have that servant spirit? Or do we see everybody as an inconvenience? Oh, I don't have time for that. I don't have time to serve them. Christ became like the ones he came to save. What have we done to identify with needy sinners? Christ was obedient to the point of sacrificing his life. How much are we living in obedience to the word of God? How much are we willing to sacrifice for our fellow brothers in need? Unity through humility. You know, I don't know to what extent we have disunity. I, I do to some extent, maybe in pockets, but... You know, all of us know, you know, how we view our fellow believers. And I'm sure many of us have other believers here that we don't get along with. People that, you know, they irritate us to no end. You know, we want to, we don't want to see anything positive in what they're doing or how they live their lives. There are people here that we just want to reject because they don't meet our own standards. Oh, he doesn't really, he's not serious about spiritual things. But the Lord is calling us to humble ourselves, to be united, to think more highly, to not do anything from selfish ambition and empty glory, vain conceit. And there are so many things in our life that we want to hold on to, unlike the Lord who left everything and came to the world as a man. We want to hold on to everything, we talked about it. Let us examine ourselves. Let us look into our own lives and be honest with ourselves. What is it that's holding me back from serving the Lord? What is it that's holding me back from loving my brother or sister? What is it that's keeping me from serving the Lord, from taking you know, obedience to his word seriously? Ultimately, it comes back to this lack of humility. But let's remember the Lord Jesus Christ and his multiple steps of humility all the way from the Godhead in glory to the cross of Calvary. You can't go any deeper than that. May God enable us to examine our own lives and to humble ourselves and become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you, Father, that He is the ultimate example of humility that you've given us this perfect example. And Lord, we want to admit, we want to confess that we fall short. Lord, all of us, every one of us has pride in our lives. Lord, we resist humbling ourselves. Lord, Satan 
seeks to accentuate that pride and keep us from service and obedience. Keep us from humbling ourselves. I pray for everyone here, Lord, every one of us, that as a church we would humble ourselves, that we would think about our brother and sister, the ones that we have problems with, the ones that we think ill of them, the ones that we don't appreciate as we should that you would change our attitude, that you would give us the spirit of humility, Lord. And through that spirit of humility, we would be united of one mind, be like-minded. And that as a result, Father, our church would grow. Lord, we know and we are thankful for all the good things that you are doing in our lives, in our families, in the lives of individuals. And yet we know that Satan seeks to attack us, that he would want to bring us down by bringing back these thoughts, these feelings of pride that will hold us back, that will keep us from moving on in maturity. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will put a hedge of protection around us, that we will put on the full armor of God, that we will resist the wiles of the devil, Lord, the wiles that work on our minds and our hearts and our attitudes and our actions, Father. Thank you again for this word. We pray that you will bless it to us. We ask in the name of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, before Kishore comes for the announcements, uh, we want to... Um